more than I realize how enthralled that Peter was with the future glory of Christ at his coming. The, the more I study it, the more I realize how absolutely taken Peter was with the fact that Jesus is coming again in future glory. And then as I studied the book of First Peter and Second Peter, I came to also realize how absolutely entranced the other apostles who wrote the scripture were with the coming of Christ in glory. They were fixated on the future glorious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the Apostle John who in 1 John chapter 3 said, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, he, he's talking about the appearance, the, the presence of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he said in 1 John 3, 1, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then the Apostle Paul, also taken with the future glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, when he said that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who told us in 1 Thessalonians that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then he said, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then the more I studied, not only did I realize that the apostles were taken with this great fact, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself prayed for this in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He said, Father, I desire that they also may be with me, whom, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory. Oh, I tell you what, I realize that the Bible is just taken with the fact of a future glorious coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter told his readers in his second letter, he said, we're not following cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, question is, what does it mean, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I'll tell you this, it can only refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, listen. Peter was fighting a battle when he was writing these epistles. He was fighting a battle when he was writing these letters. He was fighting both to remind his readers and to confront false teachers. The readers needed to be reminded because readers quickly forget these great truths, especially the great truth of the future appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there were false teachers who were mocking, who were scoffing, and they needed to be confronted. Peter said, scoffers will come in the last days saying, where is the promise of his coming? And so he's fighting this battle to remind believers and to confront false teachers who were claiming that Peter and the other apostles were just following cleverly devised myths when they preached the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this You'll see, if you read 1 Peter carefully, you'll see that this was on Peter's mind. 
Verse 7, talking of chapter 1, he's talking about the, 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 the grievous trials we endure. And he says that it may result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 13 of chapter 1, he refers to the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 13, he said, Rejoice in Christ's sufferings so that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In chapter 5, he talked about the chief shepherd appearing and receiving us receiving the unfading crown of glory. And then in chapter 5, verse 10, he put it this way. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm himself, he says, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So the point is, Peter was enthralled with the idea of a coming Christ. Now, of course, Peter talked about the work of Christ in his first coming, but he was focused on the glory of Christ in his second coming. He was not following some cleverly devised myth because he tells us in his second letter, in chapter 1, that he had seen with his own eyes the glory of Jesus Christ. And you remember what happened? In Matthew chapter 16, in Matthew chapter 16, I'll set the story for you. Jesus said, there's, there's some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His glory. And then six days later, He took three of those apostles with Him, three of those disciples, Peter, James, and John. And when He went up onto that mountain, you remember what happened there, that mountain of transfiguration, Peter saw Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. There you have the representatives of the law and the prophets who've come together. And then the Lord Jesus Christ was transfigured before them all. He shone brightly with the glory of heaven. The same glory that we will see when he comes again. And this was a sign of his glory. Because he said, some who are standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. And he, six days later, there's Jesus in his glory. And Peter was there as an eyewitness to bear testimony about the identity of Jesus Christ. And then you have a voice from heaven giving testimony also to the identity of Jesus Christ. Now listen, this event... This transfiguration of Jesus was about demonstrating once again that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, listen, of all the Old Testament promises, the covenants, and all of the Old Testament prophecies, the predictions, and all of the Old Testament patterns, the types. He is, in fact, unmistakably, irrevocably so. He is the Messiah And we have the prophetic scriptures which predict, now listen, not only the first coming of Christ, but we have the prophetic scriptures which predict his glorious second coming. The same scriptures which accurately, straightforwardly predict the first coming, accurately, straightforwardly predict his glorious second coming. And we saw that last time we were together in 1 Peter 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 10, we read concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted. Now listen, the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. When you look at the Old Testament, there's an indication that there would be two advents of the Messiah. Two advents of the Messiah. There's this emphasis laid on the sufferings of the coming one. And that is indeed what we read about in the sufferings of the, the coming. There will be one coming. Micah 5, 2. You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come, for from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Hey, Isaiah predicts it. The Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And then he sees not only his coming, but he sees his suffering when he says, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. They, they made his grave with the wicked. Daniel saw that day the sufferings of Christ and after two sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. He saw that very one. There was a, a, an emphasis in the Old Testament laid on the sufferings of this one who was to come. But there was an equal emphasis laid on his future glorious coming. Daniel saw it in Daniel chapter 2. He said, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. He saw it in chapter 7. The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey Him. Zechariah saw it in chapter 2. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. He looked in chapter 14, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. And later in chapter 14, on that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. A future glorious coming. A future glorious king and kingdom. Friends, the scriptures confirm that Jesus is the one. The scriptures confirm that Jesus was the one. And thus, it is the scriptures which authenticate Jesus as the Messiah. If you want to know who Jesus is, go to the Scriptures. The same Scripture, which accurately tells of His first coming, speaks with equal vigor and a straightforward manner regarding the second coming of the same Lord Jesus Christ. If we believe that Jesus came to earth as the incarnate Son of God, just as the Scripture clearly indicates, we also believe with an equal amount of enthusiasm that He will come again in great glory. And that's 
what has Peter by the throat in these letters. He's enthralled with the future glorious coming of Jesus Christ. And he wants you and I to be enthralled as well. So last week, we looked at verses 10 through 12 of chapter 1. And we saw Peter talking about the grace of God in salvation. How that grace is anchored in prophetic inspiration. How that grace was proclaimed by apostolic proclamation. And how this grace is admired with angelic concentration. And how this grace will be awarded at Christ's revelation. He's focused our mind, our attention on the future glorious coming of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see in our text this morning, beginning in chapter 1, verse 13, we're going to notice that in light of the grace of God, the grace of God which is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to three specific actions. In chapter 1, verses 13 through 19, you will see with me the three specific actions to which we are called. Number one, we are called, in light of the grace that we talked about last week, you and I as believers are called, number one, in verse 13, to live a hopeful life. We're called to live a hopeful life. And then, in verses 14 through 16, we are called to live a holy life. To live a holy life. And then in verses 17 through 19, we're called to live an honorable life. We're called to live a hopeful life. We're called to live a holy life. And we are called to live an honorable life. Look with me at verse 13. Therefore, now stop right there. (laughs) We're going to get far today. This word tells us on the basis of what has just been said. What he's going to say is rooted, is grounded, is founded solidly, deeply on the truth that has just been laid out in verses 10 through 12. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now let's pray. And so, Lord, attend to that which is dearest your heart. Your eternal word. Make it live. I pray in Christ's name. 
Amen. Now you see very firstly that in light of the grace that we've received, the grace of salvation that we've received, we talked about last week, and that we've been really building up to since we began this study January 1st. So since then, we've been getting up to this point. And he's getting up to the point he wants to call you and I to, number one, live a hopeful life. You see, we are to fix our hope. Our hope. What is hope? Hope is a confident expectation of the grace that Christ will bring at his revelation. In this case, hope, the hope of a Christian is really the same thing as the the faith of the Christian. However, hope looks more to the future with a confident expectation. So, let me say it this way. I'll give you this definition and write this down. To live a hopeful life, friends, is to live a life of confident expectation... To live a hopeful life is to live a life of confident expectation in the glorious and gracious second coming of Christ. To live a hopeful life is to live a life of confident expectation in the glorious and gracious second coming of Christ. This is to be the fixed hope of every genuine believer in Christ. It's what Paul told us in Titus chapter 2 when he said that we are waiting for our blessed, what? Hope. Which is what? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2 verse 13. We say this way. We are to live with our head in the clouds. Listen. We have seen The way that Christ has been fulfilled in the Old Testament prophecies and promises and patterns. Therefore, put your hope in that one day, someday, when he returns with his grace for all those who love him and who wait for his appearing. Put your hope there. Your confident expectation in that. We are to be taken with the thought. We are to be enthralled with the reality that Christ is coming with grace. Immediately someone's going to say this. But hey, you just said we're to put our heads in the clouds. Joe, you do that, you're going to be one of them there Christians who's too heavenly minded and they're no earthly good. Right? To which I'd respond that you should understand that the more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you will be. Part of John Owen's epitaph on his tombstone reads this. Listen. While on the road to heaven, his elevated mind almost comprehended its full glories and joy. While on the road to heaven, his elevated mind almost comprehended It's heaven's full glories and joy. You remember what it was like when you were 13, 14. Some of you remember that, right? Way back when you were 13, 14, 15. You were that old and you you set your mind, right? You set your mind on a day when you would finally be able to get what? Your driver's license. And listen, 
You ordered your life accordingly. You probably even changed the way you behaved and you started obeying your parents a little bit more. And maybe you changed the way you spent and you started saving for a car. Why? Because your mind was fixated on that day when, when you would get your driver's license or maybe you remember what it was like, you know, a year Five months, four months, three months, one day uh, before your wedding day. And your mind was fixated on that day and you couldn't wait. Everything you did and everything you thought and everything you said and everything you spent was fixated on that day. Your life was ordered accordingly because you had hope. The confident expectation that one day she'd walk through that door, burst through those doors, light of heaven shining, angels, voices, trumpets, and then she would give herself to you as your wife. Well, that's a little bit what it's like to hope in the glorious, gracious second coming of Christ. Now, you notice something. He says we're to set our hope fully. Don't miss that. Set your hope fully. Why would he say set your hope fully? Could it be for the same reason that the hymnist wrote, prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love? We're to set our hope completely, fully, not half-heartedly, We're to set our hope fully on the day when Christ will appear, bringing his grace with him. Peter says this, no doubt, because we are prone to being half-hearted. He says this because we're like, there's so many other things on which we can fix our hope. I like what one man said. He said, if we don't set our hope fully on Jesus, it will be seized by some groundless hope du jour. Now, for those of you who don't know French, it means the hope of the day (laughs) or Spanish or whatever it is. (laughs) He says, or we'll be easily seduced by a carpetbagger selling snake oil hope or Satan will sabotage our ability to hope and will drift downwardly into sadness, despair, anger, and cynicism. He says, set your hope fully in Christ coming with grace. Did you hear that? So I got to ask you, are you a child of God this morning? Are you a child of God? Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, exchanged your unrighteousness for his righteousness, repented of your sin, believed that he suffered, bled, and died, was buried, and rose again the third day, just like the scripture said? Is that you? Then this is your anticipation, this is your expectation that Jesus will come with grace. Now, if you're not a believer this morning, if you're, if you're a make-believer, you, you've never really trusted Christ, your expectation will be that he's coming with judgment and wrath. But for those who are believers, he's coming with grace. Can you believe it? You you and I are to live every day as if Christ were coming with a full helping of his marvelous saving grace. In my notes, I just wrote a prayer. As I was studying, I said, oh Lord, may it be, help my unbelief, gracious Father. Help me live not in self-confidence and worldly hope, but in hope, with hope in Christ. Now the question is, 
How do you do that? How in the world do you live with that kind of hope? How do we fix our hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to us at the coming of Christ? Paul would have said it this way in 2 Timothy 2.1. He would say, you therefore, my son, be being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. But Peter gives us a little bit more help, I think, than Paul does. See, the main verb in this sentence is to set your hope. And that main verb is accompanied by two dependent participles. Two dependent descriptive participles. uh, uh, Verbal adjectives which help to explain what it means to fully fix your hope. He's telling us how to do that. And notice what he says. This is at the very beginning now. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. That's how. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So first I would say you're called to live a hopeful life and you do that by preparing your mind. Preparing your mind. Now I think it's interesting that Peter does not begin with emotions here. He does not begin with feelings. He begins with the mind. In order to live hopefully with your, your, your hope fixated on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we are not instructed to stir up our emotions, but we're instructed to gird up our minds. To gird up our minds, preparing your, action from, your, your minds for action. There's a, there's a picture that the ESV misses when it says preparing your mind for action. The picture here is brought up of a Roman soldier with the words that are used. He, he picks up pictures of the, the Roman soldier who has his robe. And when he's getting ready for battle, he would pick up the ends of his robe and tuck them into his belt so as to be able to move freely, to be unhindered for, and ready for battle. And, and what Peter is saying is, if you want to live a hopeful life, you need to pull in those loose thoughts. Those loose thoughts. Let me show you something. Go with me to Luke chapter 12. It's a great text. This this really has the picture. What Peter means here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Luke chapter 12 verse 35. Here's the picture. 12:35. Stay dressed for action. <laughs> That's what he means. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. That's it. That's what that's what we're to be. One commentator remarked that to to be prepared, have your mind prepared for action. He says, it is a call to bring all of one's rational and reflective powers under control by cutting off vague, loosely flowing thoughts and speculations that lead nowhere. Listen. Sinful actions result from sinful thoughts. Don't ever say, I sinned and I just didn't even think about it. 
Sinful actions result from sinful thoughts which feed sinful desire. And if you want to set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we have to be able to deal with our sin at the source. Paul says this, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things on earth. Put your mind to work. Exercise your mind as, as a muscle for God. You know that's what spiritual battle is? Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Spiritual battle is a battle of and for the mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Listen. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what Peter means when he says prepare your mind. Every thought captive to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Your mind is a muscle that needs to be exercised for God under the Lordship of Christ. Don't settle for a fat, flabby mind. Prepare your minds for action. Remember Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your Mind. You need to be transfigured. You and I need to be transfigured into a glorious form. Your outward image, who you are, must come from heaven and not from hell. So let yourself be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you do that? Paul's epistles are loaded with it. But I want to show you just a little bit. You renew your mind through the Word of God. The Word of God is the source of renewal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul tells us that we have, we have the mind of Christ. And he says that in reference to the Word of God. The Word of God is the mind of Christ. You will be renewed in your mind as your mind is saturated with divine truth. And there's no shortcut to this. There's no shortcut. There's no magic formula or magic pill that you can take. There's no such thing as being able to live all out for God without a mind that is thoroughly saturated with the word of God. You, you can't say, I want my body to be used up for the Lord. It depends on your mind because the mind is the battleground where the spirit of this age fights against the new nature. So what we're to do is to bring our mind in agreement with the mind of Christ as he is put on display in the word of God. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. Friends, when you have this grace of salvation that is anchored in prophetic inspiration, proclaim, uh, announced in, in apostolic proclamation, admired by angelic uh, concentration, and awarded at Christ's revelation, when you have that kind of grace, 
There's no downtime for your thoughts. Peter says, you are, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, always be what? Ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Now, I've been in pastoral ministry for a long time. And I've seen what can happen when um, one's thoughts are given to loose thinking. Letting your mind wander with thoughts which are not stayed on the truth. John Piper said this, hope happens when our minds are girded up with truth. Hope happens when our minds are girded up with truth. Minds which are not occupied with truth, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 he tells us that minds which are not occupied with truth are not prepared and ready for action. We, we sit endlessly in front of a computer or phone screen and we just scroll and all we get is mindless dribble. Our minds have become vaccinated. We're worldly thinking and, and it's full of sludge. You become riddled with self-righteousness and fear and bitterness and worry, anxiety. Just like Jesus says, I would love to take you through Luke chapter 12 and show you all of those sins. Self-righteousness and fear and bitterness and worry, anxiety. When your mind is not stayed on the truth, when you're not ready. This is much more about our minds being ready before it's about just making some haphazard decision. Look with me at Luke chapter 12. I'll show you. I know I'm already not going to get done, so I might as well just give into it. Luke chapter 12, verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, they have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom, after he is killed, has the authority to cast you in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Verse 8, and I tell you again, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be not denied before the angels of God. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said, tell me, teacher, tell my brother, teacher, to divide the inheritance with me. And he said, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundancy, abundance of his possessions. Verse 22, his, he said to his disciples, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, right, being 
being selfish and now being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life. If you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Look at the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. You can hear me read that and say, well, what am, I guess I just go sell everything. I guess I sell my car and sell my house and just... See, it's not about those decisions. It's about the readiness of your mind. Stay, what does he say in the next verse? Stay dressed for action. If the pursuit of those things, if your anxiety and your worry and your selfishness and your bitterness and your fear and your self-righteousness is hindering your readiness, those things have got to be dealt with. Not just merely on an external level, but down deeply where? In your mind it's easy just to go out and sell everything and not deal with the root of the problem in your mind prepare your mind for action there's a necessary mindfulness that is to envelop the Christian as we consider His future coming and glory. John Calvin said, He intimates that our minds are held entangled by the passing cares of the world and by vain desires so that they rise not upward to God. Whoever then really wishes to have this hope, let him learn in the first place to disentangle himself from the world and gird up his mind that it may not turn aside to vain affections. How can a young man, the psalmist said, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to the word of God. That's how. Have your mind Always at the disposal of the word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Meditate on the word day and night. And you will be like a tree planted by rivers of living water. Bringing forth fruit in its expected season. And why dear brothers and sisters. Why do we dwell on the word? Because we are looking for the great and precious promises of our God and of his Christ. And this week I have been able to set my mind looking to the hundreds of prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. I told you earlier, that's what we have in the Old Testament. We have 
We have prophecies, the predictions regarding the coming of Christ. We, we have promises, the covenants regarding the coming of Christ. And we have the, the patterns, the types of Christ. All throughout the Old that's what the Old Testament is made up of. Prophecies and promises and patterns. And I've been able to look at some of the hundreds of prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've only looked at the prophecies concerning His birth. And how no one else could copy that. No one else could duplicate the fulfillment of those prophecies. And I've looked at some of the prophecies regarding His life. And His death. And His burial. And His betrayal. And and, and His crucifixion. And His resurrection. And I'm looking into these great and precious promises regarding the establishment of his earthly kingdom. And you know what? I am finding my mind engaged in truth and ready for action like I haven't found before in my life. I am prepared for battle, I believe. I find myself believing the word today more than I've ever believed it before. Finding myself more willing to spend and be spent for the cause of Christ than at any time in my life. Because now, with my mind stayed on his word, I'm looking forward to a great and glorious and gracious appearing of Christ. The one who came the first time. Just like the prophet said will come again with this grace and you, you live a hopeful life by preparing your mind, setting your mind, pulling in loose thoughts, clipping off those, those loose errant thoughts that do not serve the Lordship of Christ. But secondly, the second participle, not only be prepared in your mind, but be disciplined in your mind by disciplining your mind. Now, Go back with me. I'm not even sure where I am. 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, second participle, and being sober-minded. Bring your mind under control. Don't be drunk in your thinking. Be alert. Be aware. Don't be drunk in your thoughts. You, you know, don't be thinking like when you encounter various grievous trials that something unusual is happening to you. If you let your mind get drunk on those kind of things, you will never live a hopeful life. One commentator of this phrase said this, it denotes a condition free from every form of mental and spiritual loss of self-control. It's an attitude of self-discipline that avoids the extremes of the reckless irresponsibility of self-indulgence on the one hand and of religious ecstasy on the other. A drunk is a danger to himself and to others. He's reckless. He's reckless in his thinking. He's unpredictable. A drunk is easily deceived. And that's exactly what happens when we allow our thoughts to be out of control, to be out from under the control of the Spirit. Now, we're not talking about, notice here, Peter doesn't say, let go and let God. That's, that's, that's an immature mentality, friends. This is much more about coming under the control of the Spirit as we yield to truth. And what is truth? John 17, 17, thy word is truth. This is the same word 
uh, when he says be sober-minded, that Peter uses in chapter 4, verse 7, and in chapter 5, verse 8, where he calls us to a spiritual alertness as the foundation for our prayerful and steadfast, uh, steadfastness in resisting satanic attacks. It's a level-headedness, a spiritual level-headedness. Drunkenness distorts reality. It numbs the senses. So what you and I have got to ask ourselves is, what are the things in my life that are numbing the senses of my mind to spiritual reality? What philosophies, what ideologies, what arguments are numbing my mind to spiritual reality that is in line with the truth of God? What things desensitize your mind to spiritual things? What media impedes a hopeful life? What unnecessary things clog up the veins of your mind? And those are the things we've got to deal with. With a spiritual sobriety, a reality not desensitized, but sensitized by and for the truth. Do you long for the revelation of Jesus Christ? Do you long for the grace that He is to bring at His second coming? Do you see that Jesus Christ is coming again? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming again? Then if you do, live a hopeful life. Your mind prepared. Your mind disciplined. Until he comes. Well, we've made it through verse 1, verse 13. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's coming. I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready to meet him in grace, not in judgment. And, and let me just, I'll just stop there and say this. If you're here today and you have never truly trusted Jesus Christ by repenting of your sin and believing on him, then when he comes, He's going to meet you in judgment. And and there should be some fearful fretting going on in this place today. Because some of you are not true believers. And it breaks my heart to say that. Some of you are not true believers. And you will meet Him in judgment. Unless... You feel your heart drawn to Him. You see the reality that it is inescapable and irrevocable that Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised one. He's the one 
You can't doubt this. You can't get away from this. He is the one sent from God to bear up the penalty of your sin in his own body when he died on the cross. And that he was buried just as the scripture says. And that he rose the third day according to the scriptures. If you'll come to believe that truth. To submit yourself to that truth. No strings attached. You'll lay it all out before him. You can be a right now recipient of grace. And look forward to a future grace. But if you will not have this, I want you to remember this day, mark this day down, March 26, 2023, as the day when you said no to grace. Let's pray.